Down south, they say it's the economy, stupid. Up here, we say it's the economy, eh? And this is Political A Economy Radio, a progressive take on economic issues in Canada and beyond. My name is Michał Rozwodski, and welcome to the show. This week, two historians of labor talk about their new books on Canadian and U.S. workers and labor movements in the 20th century, books which offer important and practical lessons for labor today. First up, I speak with Barry Eidlin, Assistant Professor of Sociology at McGill University, about his book that compares the Canadian and U.S. labor movements. We discuss everything from the recent Janus decision, to how the U.S. labor law regime obscures the fundamental power imbalances in the workplace, to how Canadian, Canadian unions still need internal revival despite their better position. Next, I talk with Christo Ivalis, postdoctoral fellow in history at the University of Toronto, about his book on Pierre Elliott Trudeau and that prime minister's relationship to labor, a relationship that foreshadows how neoliberalism would be implemented in Canada and the labor movement weakened in later decades. It too holds lessons, particularly for how to fight Trudeau the Younger. Here's my conversation with Barry Eidlin. So let's start with your with your recent book, uh, just published, Labor and the Class Idea in the United States and Canada. Uh, you've looked comparatively at uh, U.S. and Canadian unions and their history. Um, in broadest terms, what do you think, what's your thesis um, to explain the stark sort of divergence between the fate of the labor movements, at least in particular in terms of union membership in these two countries over the last 30, 40 years? Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to understand one thing, which is that this is a process of divergence, not ongoing difference. And I think the reason that's important is because today we often think we often like in the U.S. people look north to Canada and just sort of think like, oh, well, they're just fundamentally different. You know, they're fundamentally, you know, like they're just more uh, sympathetic to social democratic ideas. They they're more pro-union or whatever. Um, but what's important to start off with is the idea that this is a process of divergence in that, you know, unionization, labor movement was virtually identical, the, the, the statistics at least, were identical in both countries up until about the 1960s. And then there was a process of divergence to the point now where unionization rates or what we call union density is almost three times higher in Canada than it is in the U.S. So. We, what, it's not simply a matter of saying Canada is different than the U.S. It's how it became different. So that's mm-hmm. the first thing. And how it became different is basically the consequence of different ways that the um, ruling parties, political parties of the time, uh, responded to the worker upsurges in both countries in the 1930s and 40s which is the moment where sort of modern labor relations regimes took shape in both countries. And basically, the, the, the irony here is that it was actually a more pro-union response on behalf of the U.S. government. So we're talking here about uh, President Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal, um, that more pro-labor response in the U.S. actually had a negative long-term effect on union strength, whereas a more hostile response from the Canadian state ultimately led to a stronger Canadian labor regime. 
and I can talk more about that if you want. Yeah, act- yeah, and I mean, I think I think that I, I mean I think that was really interesting to me. And and you're 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 even just the book title uses this term, the class idea, um, and you kind of say that the Canadian state. I mean, I found this this interesting. You said the Canadian state understood labor relations sort of explicitly or more explicitly as class conflict, or that's how it was, you know, or that's what was sort of happening more explicitly in Canada and, and, and something that wasn't true of the U.S. Yeah, could you expand sort of on that? Yeah, so the fundamental idea is that they, that so the, the creation of these labor relations regimes is basically the way that, that labor is what, I, what you can call politically incorporated, so brought into sort of normal politics, um, you know, and so as opposed to prior to the 1930s where... Um, labor in both countries is sort of quasi quasi illegal and dealt with on a sort of ad hoc basis via sort of police and military control. That's sort of the general way that the state interacts with it. And after the 1930s and 40s, there's these sort of bureaucratic procedures that are set up to deal with labor management conflict. And the idea is that the that in the U.S. labor gets incorporated as a special interest group. Um, this is something that basically the idea being that they're 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 a narrow group that represents the interests of that group of workers, and that sort of balanced against a bunch of other competing societal interests uh, that need to be taken into consideration. And when you have all these sort of uh, cross-cutting interests, the idea is that some sort of general interest sort of emerges out of that. That's sort of at least the way it's supposed to, that's the way that that system works in theory. Um, Whereas in Canada, labor gets incorporated as a class representative, meaning that, that labor is viewed by the state as a representative of working class of of a working class against which there are there's an employer class right um and that fundamental way that the state views labor in the two countries has profound effects over the long term in terms of how labor law and labor unions get treated um in the sense that in the U.S., because this is this special interest group, over time what happens is that those interests get balanced against other competing interests, um, and those competing interests are things like, you know, employer property rights or individual um, free speech rights um, or, or things like that that ultimately erode the foundations of the labor relations regime and exposes unions to much more vicious attack. Whereas in Canada, this idea of the class representative means that the fundamental goal of labor relations law is not to promote some individual, some, some special interest rights, but rather to contain industrial conflict. And what that means is that even for people in Canada, employers and, and conservative politicians who might be quite anti-union um, still understand that, well, we need this regime in place 
to keep a lid on things because we don't want things getting out of hand. And so even when you have conservative governments or you have aggressive employers, there's a willingness uh, to strengthen the regime just to keep that goal of, of keeping a lid on industrial conflict in place. And so when you get flare-ups in labor management relations in Canada, um, the response is often, uh, you know, interventionists, uh, you know, you get a lot of back-to-work legislation, for example, against unions, but you also have a willingness to strengthen the labor relations regime um, in ways that protect unions' ability to function. And that over, so that, and that's things like, um, you know, protecting the right to strike, uh, protecting, um, you know, union security. So we had in the U.S. just recently this Supreme Court decision called Janus v. Asmi that basically said that the whole public sector in the U.S. is uh, supposed to, is, is, has to be right to work because forcing workers to pay even a fee for the costs associated with negotiating and enforcing their collective bargaining agreements is an infringement of their free speech rights. In Canada, it's the exact opposite, where there's no perceived constitutional conflict between paying those kinds of fees and, um, and individual free speech rights. Right. Uh, and there's actually the opposite, like there's a mandated what's called agency shop. So those kinds of things basically uh, derive from the fundamentally different uh, ways that the state views the purpose of these labor laws. Yeah, yeah, and I think, and, and the sort of explicit, uh, you seem to suggest that sort of more of an explicit understanding of the kind of power imbalances and all that, like where in the U.S. you have free speech rights being used, you know, employers using their free speech rights um, during, you know, during a certification process to, uh, to you know, to, to hold uh, captive audience uh, meetings and, and all of this with employees where, and that, you know, it's kind of abstracted from, okay, what's the actual, you know, what's the situation here? Um, yeah, exactly. The, the, one of the fundamental things about the, 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 that's at the foundation of this special interest category is that it assumes that all of these interest groups that are competing against each other in the political and economic sphere are equal. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and there's no acknowledgement whatsoever of the structural power imbalances that exist between them. And so a lot, the way that, that labor and management are viewed before the law are as structurally equal counterparts. Whereas anyone who has ever showed up at work uh, for a day in their life uh, is intuitively understands that there's a structural power imbalance between labor and management, between a worker and their employer. Employers structurally have more power in that relationship. And so the act of viewing those two parties as equal has the effect substantively of benefiting the more powerful party in that agreement, in this case, employers. Yeah. Um, 
I want to get to a couple of things. Maybe maybe first you mentioned you mentioned the the Janus uh, decision already, which as you said sort of effectively institutes um, right to work across the entire public sector in the U.S. What does this decision and just like you know this is just another step in kind of undermining, uh, you know, and in some sense undermining. The, the labor movement as it was kind of, you know, at, as that regime as it was kind of imagined in the Wagner Act and and all of that. What what are the consequences of this in both sort of the, in your view, um, for American unions in both sort of the short and, and, and the long term? Like, it, you know, is this kind of signaling this regime is just kind of, you know, and with with union density, you know, near the single digits? Um, in the single digits? In the single digits for, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So first of all, I mean, the first thing to say is that the, the Janus decision is very much in keeping with this trajectory of labor law evisceration that I've been talking about. It's it, it's it's absolutely in keeping with this consequence yeah. of viewing labor rights as these special interest rights that need to be balanced against all these other competing rights. That's the first thing to say. Um, in terms of the the actual effects, um, you know, the, 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 the tricky thing with right-to-work laws is that it's, it's actually very difficult to measure the sort of independent effect of these right-to-work laws. Um, you know, there's a lot of studies that go both in, in all kinds of different directions, uh, precisely because um, the, the, there, there's a lot of what what economists well you would you'd be familiar with the term uh, endogeneity yeah. what they call endogeneity meaning that is it places where unions are already weak that right to work laws get implemented or is it right to work laws that cause the weakness yeah. um, where uh, I think what's clear in this case and certainly with this not just Janus decision but there's been multiple states in recent years that have implemented these right-to-work laws after many years of this sort of being on the back burner, um, is that these right-to-work laws serve as a signal of unions' fundamental weakness. And the response, um, you know, and it, it sort of, it does trigger this existential crisis for labor, and rightly so, not so much because of what the laws will do themselves, but because of what it signals about the state of labor capital power dynamics in the current situation. And so the response is going to have to be, you know, if if we want to see a continued labor movement in the U.S., um, <laughs> something that really gets outside of the existing framework, which has been eviscerated to the point where it is, you know, virtually useless for actually defending workers' rights. And so, it, and and I think that, you know, it, it's ultimately going to have to be some sort of, I mean, the, 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 the actual state of labor capital, power dynamics has basically returned to a pre-Wagner Act era. So the so the, the, the right wing and employers have basically managed in the US to turn back the clock 
to the era before the establishment of these labor uh, relations regimes that I've been talking about. And so the response is going to have to, from labor, is in some ways going to have to be uh, somewhat of a back-to-the-future move as well yeah. in terms of engaging in the kind of mass disruptive um, actions that were what won those labor rights in the first place. So I think that that's really what we're going to have to see. And, and to some extent, we are seeing uh, yeah, the, ir- the, the irony here is that the people, the, the, the lawyers who were arguing for the union side in the Janus case, one of their arguments against uh, overturning the precedent and one of the arguments against sort of uh, ruling in favor of Janus was precisely that it would lead to mass labor unrest. <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, so that was one of the one of the cruxes of their argument, um, and um, you know, in this case, I think um, you know, um, my, my hope is that I mean, you know, it, it could be on the one hand wishful thinking, but one would one would hope that I mean, but but the the problem is that that's actually what needs to happen yeah. in order to turn things around. Yeah, and I think some of the teachers' mobilizations, I mean, just sort of prefigure that it's not yet quite that, but it. It has that kind of a flavor and interestingly in the public sector, which just, you know, a few months later. Absolutely. And these are also places where these laws are already in effect. Yeah. Right. That, you know, and and yeah, West Virginia, Arizona, Oklahoma, uh, Kentucky. Um, and these places, not, not only in, in some cases they're, you know, they, they literally, it's not just right to work. They actually don't even have collective bargaining rights. Right. And so I think that, that, that that's really the important lesson to draw here is that the way that unions need to rebuild is not by trying to, you know, reform the labor laws or get the right Supreme Court justices in place or get the right politicians elected. It's to create a political crisis through mass disruption that forces a response from political elites, whoever they may be, sympathetic or not, and forcing them to act uh, to respond to that crisis. And that's how you get these actual um, the, the, these labor reforms. Yeah. I want to turn very briefly back to Canada, uh, to, you know, the kind of foil for uh for for what's happening in, in the U.S. in in your book, what's happened historically, um, and just sort of you know ask the question of whether you know comparatively we're doing well here, but should we should we be comfortable with the fact? Absolutely that- not. Absolutely <laughs> not. No, that 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 that's the trouble I always run into when I present this work to uh, Canadian union audiences that that Canadian labor is in no great shape either. Um, and Canadian labor activists are very conscious of the fact that you know unions are in tough in, in tough shape, and um, you know just it was just today that the the, the York grad students were legislated back to work yeah. by the Ontario government. Um, you know, it, I by no means want to give the impression in this book that you know Canada is some sort of social democratic pro labor paradise. It's simply the fact that compared to the U.S., 
things are doing better in Canada. But that does not mean that Canada does not face, Canadian labor uh, does not face significant um, challenges. There's, you know, like, it's like I just mentioned the back-to-work legislation. I mean, that sort of is a becoming more of a calling card of Canadian governments to respond to labor unrest by legislating um, workers back to work. Um, you know, you, you've got, uh, you know, you still, you have declining union density. You have things like the, the, the same difficulty that, 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 um, that American unions have had in organizing, for example, the, 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 the foreign auto plants, right? Mm-hmm. The, the Japanese and German auto plants in Canada. Um, you know, you have, you know, virtually de-unionized retail, um, you know, these massive growth industries in, in, in Canada um, that remain pretty much non-union. There's a lot that needs to be done to revive labor in Canada as well. And I think that the lesson from the book is that um, it's to resist the sort of um, trend to become more American, <laughs> basically. And what I mean by that is Hire not just... Yeah, is, is to resist the sort of legalistic, um, you know, component... Uh, also, the sort of certain thing, certain responses by Canadian labor, like uh, strategic voting, um, you know, abandoning, you know, trying try to sort of, you know, weakening the base of the NDP, uh, which has its own problems. But um, like I say at one point, um, that the the only thing worse than having a weak sellout social democratic party is not having one. <laughs> That's, I think, one of the lessons that we learn from the U.S.-Canada comparison. So I think that, you know, this sort of playing footsie with the liberals um, has been sort of a, 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 a bad move. And, you know, on down the line, you know, we, we could talk about the various problems that Canadian labor faces, but I think the response needs to be to reassert the class idea in right. Canada, to reassert labor's role as the voice of this idea of the working class as a sort of unified front, if you will, that it has sort of these shared interests in economic justice and equality. I want to I want to end on 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 one thing that goes maybe even even a bit further um, and goes away from the book and and to in this. I thought excellent article that that you wrote um, with Michael Utrecht, the Jackman editor, editor on on a largely lost tradition, sort of a fighting for for workplace democracy, um, because I think it ties in nicely as as a kind of you know, as a way of talking about something that isn't just that kind of wages and benefits on the one hand and kind of legalistic framework of of you know how can we just you know improve some kind of again, some kind of position within this war of kind of competing interests, um, but goes to something broader, and that might be useful um, in sort of fighting to, you know, renew unions in today's climate. I don't know if you could just sort of speak to that and and say, you know, how that ties into union kind of renewal as well. Yeah, no, I think that that, that it ties in very fundamentally, because I think what that that piece and that's sort of what I'm working on now for my, my next book, um, starts from this glaring paradox 
that exists in both the U.S. and Canada, less so in Canada, but that basically we have this idea um, that, uh, politically speaking, we live as citizens in a democracy, and that gives us certain fundamental unalienable rights, you know, the freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, um, due process under the law. And the idea, however abstract and imperfect, that, you know, the people should rule, right? That, that you know, and, and obviously it falls short on all kinds of, uh, all kinds of uh, measures, um, you know, but the idea is still deeply ingrained that we live in a democracy and we should have these rights and when there's when those rights seem to not be uh, fully there, fully available, there's this deep sense of you know, well, you know, what about what about my rights? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and whereas, so there's this deeply felt sense of citizens having rights in a democracy that the vast majority of people check at the door every day when they show up at work because those rights only apply to your relationship to your government. They do not apply to your relationship to your employer, even though employers in a lot of ways have much more control over your day-to-day life than your government does. And that stark division, it's not that it didn't always, I mean, it didn't always exist, but... um, it's not that there was some workplace democracy in the past that mm-hmm. that, uh, that that was somehow uh, you know defeated or somehow disappeared, but workers' movements and workers' parties didn't always take for granted that stark division between our economic lives as workers and our political lives as citizens, and fought for a vision of democracy that incorporated both economic and political elements. So with the and even even if you're in a union, you know, you do get some of those what you could call civil rights in the sense of you do get a certain amount of due process, you get a certain amount of freedom of speech, freedom of assembly that are denied if you do not have a union. You have no uh, none of those rights whatsoever. But what we're, what Mike and I were trying to get at, what I'm trying to talk about in this book, is this broader idea of sovereignty, in the sense of who has sovereignty in the workplace, right? So in a democracy, sovereignty relies with the people, re- resides with the people. The people are the are ultimately the the who decides, you know, what what happens. Um, whereas in the workplace. The employer remains the sovereign, is sort of the Leviathan, if you will. <laughs> um, you know, the employers are the unquestioned sovereign, even in, to some extent, in unionized workplaces. So unions have really abandoned this idea of challenging sovereignty in the workplace. And so I think that the idea of sort of challenging employer sovereignty in the workplace is a key missing part of the discussion of workplace democracy. And so the the goal here, I think, and so if turning it back more concretely to um, what this means for labor uh, renewal, 
and what the movement should be doing, you know, I mean, I think that what this means is that, that you know, unions need to be focused more on the workplace and what and the day-to-day life of what goes on in the workplace. I think that unions have gotten too focused. I mean, it's not like wages, benefits, and all that, you know, are, 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 and pensions and stuff are unimportant. Far from it. They're essential. But what's really important is that Unions are one of the only ways that workers have to, you know, claim a certain amount of dignity and respect in their day-to-day lives. Mm-hmm. And unions need to spend more time focused on reclaiming that. And the way you do that is for fighting for greater control in the workplace. And that ultimately means contesting employer sovereignty. That was Barry Eidlin, sociologist at McGill, looking at labor movements in the U.S. and Canada. Next, Christo Ivalis, a historian at UFT on P.E. Trudeau, workers and the roots of Canadian neoliberalism. Before getting to the state of you know, social democracy and liberalism in Canada today and, and, and talking about really contemporary issues, I want to start with some history. Um, you're a historian. You recently published your first book, The Constant Liberal, Pierre Trudeau, Organized Labor and the Canadian Social Democratic Left. Uh, could you just describe briefly your main argument in the book and, and what threads connect Pierre Elliott Trudeau uh, to today's political landscape, sort of why you thought you know, it was pertinent to really go back to him? Yeah, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a good question. I mean, I think, you know, when the main argument to have in the book, it tries to distinguish itself from a lot of the existing literature on Trudeau, and there's two broad camps. The first camp, it's, it's definitely smaller, um, especially within kind of formal academia, is the kind of Trudeau as a secret socialist or a communist. Um, you know, they, they, they reference, you know, his kind of loose ties to Castro, his trips to the Soviet Union and, and, and communist China. Uh, and they say, well, this is, a, this, is a, this is a communist. And he, you know, tried to turn Canada into a communist state through his time as prime minister. In the second camp, the broader camp, um, you have more of the kind of traditional argument that Trudeau was a man of the pragmatic left, that, you know, in his younger years, you know, kind of his 30s and 40s, he was, um, you know, a member of the CCF, although he never was a member, but he was a fellow traveler, if you will. He aligned with labor unions and he was, uh, you know, trying to to bring progressive change that and from those people's perspective, a lot of those authors uh, he was either a social democrat or democratic socialist, if you if you find differentiation in the term. Um, and then he became a liberal, uh, big L, um, in some cases small L, but some people assert that he never stopped being a social democrat in, in you know in the in the ideological sense um, throughout his kind of political career. And they say, well, Trudeau was the pragmatic left leader that defined modern Canada. And my argument is that Trudeau was at least from from 1945, which is kind of when he kind of starts studying abroad, uh, you know, at Harvard and the London School of Economics and, and, and you know, uh, kind of leaves apart his earlier flirtations with, with corporatism and, and, and anti-Semitism and in some cases loose affiliations to fascism and becomes what I think as is as a, as a, a pretty staunch small L liberal. And that the argument is that he aligns himself with the CCF and with labor because uh, the Social Democrats, the Democratic Socialists, were much more faithful to the basic ideas of of liberalism in terms of individual liberty and freedom than than the, the, the than the Liberal Party was. But I argue that Trudeau, as Prime Minister, 
really uses his uh, you know, uses his power and his objective of liberalism is the kind of preservation of capitalism. So in the 40s and 50s, capitalism is to be preserved through reformation to make it more compassionate, to give unions increased sway, to have new social programs that dull intergenerational inequality and class strife. But by the 60s and 70s and 80s, Trudeau is convinced that capitalism needs to kind of return to its more uh, 19th century origins, that labor and the left are, 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 through the rising expectations of working people, are creating a dangerous state for capitalism, and that his job as prime minister is to you know, empower capital, weaken labor, weaken social programs, and weaken the intellectual justifications for, mm. for, for equality in favor of you know, this emphasis on, on liberty and competition in the kind of liberal sense. And so when we talk about what that means for today, my argument is generally that, you know, Trudeau's social reforms can't be discounted. My book doesn't really explore them because they're, um, they've been explored elsewhere and the, and the book has its own kind of focus on political economy, more or less. Um, but, you know, Trudeau's reforms around gay rights and, and women's rights, francophones rights, um, you know, the rise of kind of multiculturalism, which did make Canada, uh, however imperfectly, a more welcoming country, Trudeau was vital at making Canada a more equal country within each social class. Mm-hmm. But his policies were the start of kind of Canada's neoliberal revolution um, that led to it being much more unequal between social classes. And I talk about how, again, the, you know, the, the, the divergence of productivity slash profitability and wages in the mid-1970s, I connect that to his wage and price controls. Yeah, I wanted, I wanted to actually raise... Um raise that issue especially as you say that you know that rather than the 80s rather than say like Mulroney you're really looking to um to Trudeau at least for sort of the roots and sources of of say an ensuing neoliberal transformation um and and I've seen you elsewhere too note sort of the the really key impact and significance of the wage and price controls from the 70s maybe you could describe briefly this this episode and what it says about that sort of later neoliberal transformation yeah, when I just think, when I say Trudeau was the the start of neoliberalism, it's it's kind of, it's nuanced in a sense because Trudeau's policies were not always neoliberal. They were they were they were different than that. But the intellectual roots of neoliberalism, you know, the greed is good when it only comes from a when it comes from the right social class. You know, the kind of reverence for for the return of capitalistic common sense. The you know, the, the kind of race to the bottom approach to labor standards and social program standards, that kind of starts here. And wage and price controls is a great example because from 1968 onward, when Trudeau becomes prime minister, he's constantly worried about inflationary expectations. Mm-hmm. And he's concerned that, um, that social programs, that left-wing parties, that labor unions, to also, to a certain degree, also mass media and things of that sort, have given regular people too high an expectation for the future. Trudeau was worried that they, these people now thought they could have fulfilling jobs, um, that they could have a world without poverty, that they could have equality, that they could have good social programs. And Trudeau was worried that that, that, that would become expected. Because um, as a liberal, that scared him. Right, that scared him because inevitably what that's going to happen is that's all a challenge to the kind of ethos of private property and of kind of liberal individualism. So Trudeau, you know, tries intellectually to try to control wages uh, downward 
But by the mid-1970s, it becomes clear that that's not working. And so Trudeau enacts a system of wage and price controls, which applies to large firms uh, and to every unionized firm, federal and provincially regulated and private and public sector. And over the first over those three years, um, the program is successful at controlling wages. It's not so successful at controlling prices, the result of which is inflation remains quite high. But the gap between wages and prices continues to grow. And that leaves to that, that you know, that's in a sense uh, you know, the state aligning with capital to increase profit margins, at least partially. And there's followed by a second round of wage and price controls in the early 1980s. Uh, the federal government only directly applied it to its public servants. But many provincial governments and private sector businesses, out of solidarity, of course, um, um, uh, you know, enacted a similar policy that they would keep wages to 6% and then 5% the following year. Of course, that sounds great in 2018, but at the time, inflation was double that. So those were significant cuts. And if you look inside the government's private memos, because publicly, it was all about inflation. They were like, well, you know, this is bad for low-income people. It's bad for seniors. It's bad for single mothers. And these greedy unions, um, and sometimes they would attack big businesses, are are making money because they they can bargain themselves out of inflation. The regular person can't. That was the public discourse, but the private discourse was that workers had already lost a ton of real income since the 1975 to 1978 cut. So the public sector, the public servants, um, you know, the, the, the advisors behind the scenes were like, look, if you want to control wages because you think it's going to fight inflation, you know, that's, that's not going to work. But if you want to control wages because you want to weaken unions and you want to signal to the public that you're punishing public sector workers then by all means do it because it's going to be an effective tactic. And another thing that, that affected it was was that Trudeau, unlike his neoliberal descendants, if you will, did not want to destroy unions but rather constrain them. Right. You know, he's, he never approached a right-to-work scenario. He never had this idea that I want to have a Canada without unions because Trudeau saw uh, a non-unionized working class as chaotic. Rather, he wanted unions to exist, but to have very limited powers. So, for instance, in 1979, it never gets implemented. He proposes something called an average total comparability formula, the purpose of which would be to say to to federal public sector unions, look, your current ACTC score is 100. We're going to let you go up to 105. You can do that in any way you choose. You can take it all in wages or in a combination of wages, benefits, vacation, um, etc., but you will be prohibited and arbitrators will be prohibited from bargaining beyond that 105 score. Right. And that score will be determined largely by finding comparators in the private sector. Of course, if the private sector was growing faster, the government gave itself an exception to, to not be compared to the private sector. So the whole goal was to say, oh, collective bargaining still exists, much like how in the wage and price control period, wage, collective bargaining existed but you weren't allowed to bargain for more than what the government said, uh, you know, the, 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 the maximum cap was to be. So there was this preservation of collective bargaining and of the general union process, but fully constrained by these, you know, goals defined by, you know, keeping public sector expenditures down. And in these private reports, uh, a concerted effort to assist private capital of not having the public sector influence broader wage trends in a positive sense. 
Yeah, no, that sounds familiar, and it sounds yeah, and and that sort of differential success between between the wage controls and the price controls, um, as you say, sort of showing you know where where the emphasis was and who was seen as the real sort of as the real danger and and the real driver of sort of you know I think economic chaos or something you know this kind of uh, this kind of factor in the, in the sort of liberal mindset. I, your book deals with the labor movement quite centrally too, and I wanted to ask also what echoes you see today in you know the earlier Trudeau's relationship to unions um, and and how in general we should look at the relationship between un- unions and liberal parties both federal and provincial sort of since then uh, and I mean particularly probably in the Ontario context where there has been you know where there's been sort of alignments and realignments between unions and, and the NDP and the liberal party um, but how does that kind of come back to Trudeau and and, and again you know how does that in, in, impact the ensuing history? Yeah, I mean, well, you know, Trudeau going back to the fifties was close to various unions, not so much the uh, the TLC craft unions, but split his time between the Catholic syndicates in in Quebec, um, you know, who would become the the CSN that when they secularized in the sixties, um, and the uh, the 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 you know, Canadian Congress of Labor, the the CIO unions in Canada, of course including also some national unions like the Brotherhood of Railway Employees. Trudeau did a lot of arbitrations. He did political education. He did some courses on economics and politics for unions. And, of course, he, uh, I don't believe, was ever really paid for them. He kind of did them pro bono. And and uh, he built up a lot of goodwill uh, doing these things for unions within the Quebec context. Um, uh, as he became prime minister, some of this was remembered. Some, some people uh, saw it as optimistic. But he never really won kind of formal endorsements from unions in any kind of systemic sense. Because mm-hmm. at the time, many of the public sector unions were just starting to come into their own about like direct political organizing. And many of the private sector industrial unions were still more firmly aligned behind the NDP. Trudeau ran his campaign in opposition to the wage and price controls. And if you read his speeches and if you read the, 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 the advice he's getting... He's told to make this campaign targeting the industrial worker who fears the wage and price controls and to basically make an argument, vote for me or uh, you know, ch- leave the NDP and vote for me or Stanfield, the conservative leader at the time, progressive conservative, is going to come in and implement wage and price controls. And of course it works. Trudeau turns his minority into a majority um, and, uh, and he sees a sharp increase in support from union households and then, and then makes the decision quickly after to implement the thing he ran against. Um, so Trudeau, you know, in 1979, um, uh, faced a big backlash in the early eighties, something interesting happened. Uh, Trudeau implemented the national energy program. And I spend a chapter kind of talking about energy and, and economic democracy. And whereas labor was still quite critical because they were more sympathetic to the NDP plan of, of national ownership of energy, which was less corporate subsidies and more a, a wholesale nationalization of the industry, at least in part. Um, they were still supportive of Trudeau because he was seen as a bulwark against like Reaganism, at least on the on, at least on the oil front. That even his partial nationalization, you know, the rise of Petro Canada was something that needed to be defended. You know, so in terms of you know labor with the the you know I, I think one of the challenges with with labor in in the kind of post Trudeau era is that. You know, the, the 1990s were, were, was not good to the NDP, um, and it left labor in a difficult position. Also, uh, Charles Smith, 
and Larry Savage's new book on kind of labor in the courts really makes the case that labor in the kind of post-charter era became much more successful uh, in, in, in winning, winning concession through the legal system. And so I think that politics became less about electing a specifically social democratic government and more about not electing a conservative government because they felt that they were getting success with the kind of status quo liberal courts. So I think that's an effect. But I mean, my, my personal perspective is that, you know, um, the NDP certainly has, uh, has to, to do better at courting labor, but I, but I also feel that um, it, it's, it's, it's unprecedented to see key labor leaders at liberal conventions, and the Liberal Party, I don't believe, has done anything to warrant labor's interest or trust. Um, so I find it quite puzzling, frankly, because, because Justin Trudeau, um, you know, isn't exactly, you know, uh, even his father in terms of kind of some of the, the, the left-leaning issues, although he hasn't jailed labor leaders or enacted wage and price controls, right. um, he hasn't been pressured to do so by, either by labor militancy or by, you know, the macroeconomic trends. Right. Yeah, I mean, in, in some ways, it's a kind of degeneration on both fronts, you know, no, no labor and price controls and, and, and none of that politics. But also, you know, he didn't study with Lasky and he didn't, you know, he was off, you know, doing like broad kind of social justice programs and didn't, didn't spend time in the labor movement either. So in some ways, you know, he, he doesn't even have those contradictions that, um, that Trudeau the father have. No, no, certainly not. I mean, like, you know, there was the whole thing a few years ago where Justin crossed the picket line, but, you know, there's stories of Trudeau, and you can be critical of him, but in the 50s, he was driving trucks through tear gas to set up picket lines, Right. you know, in, in, in Duplessis, Quebec. So, I mean, he's, you know, whether what his ultimate motivations are for aligning with the labor movement in the 1950s aside, the guy has probably more experience with class warfare than many labor leaders today do. Pierre Trudeau did, and many, and probably more than I do. Certainly, I've never been on a violent picket line before, but he, but he has, right? So that was an interesting wrinkle in, in what this guy kind of went through. Yeah, and and gave him that kind of understanding, and then, like you say, you know, might certainly scared the the capitalists, and probably scared him to, a, you know, as a defender of a kind of liberal order. Exactly, in and that respect, that, right? Yeah, Trudeau's fear was that in Quebec, especially, um, but but not 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 absent in the rest of uh, in English Canada um, Trudeau was really worried that employers and the state in Quebec through their just general disregard for social programs and for unions were just asking for revolution mm -hmm. they were asking for it and Trudeau would say to these people we have to reform otherwise in a sense the workers will take everything and, and even when Trudeau goes to China, he's actually quite impressed by some of Mao's reforms. And he goes in the late 50s, early 60s, right? right? But his main message is that the world peasantry is not going to look to Canada or the United States for an example anymore. They're going to look to China. And if we want to stop that, we have to offer something different. Yeah. So he's pleading for, you know, uh, in a sense, a passive revolution of capitalism to be to be more accommodating. And of course, by the late 60s, Trudeau is convinced that it's gone too far and that they've become too accommodating to reformism. And now we need to kind of pull back a little bit. So he will, he would use terms like the government isn't a Santa Claus. Like it's like, it's, it's something you would read in the opinion pages of, of the national post and not from supposedly one of Canada's most liberal or left leaning 
prime ministers. But but that was the times, of, according to Trudeau, it was it was time to pull back from the broad post-war compromise that started, you know, during World War II, you know, with massive government planning and intensified in the 50s and 60s with the rise of social programs, you know, Medicare, uh, you know, things of that kind. Yeah. When you're in the end, I want to come back to that question from the start. So, you know, about the lessons um, for today's left from from social Democrats to socialists, you know, whoever gets included in that broad tent, but the lessons that your work holds for for today's left. Um, and what, yeah, just what you see those as, as coming, as coming out of this, out of this, you know, really close look at, at the seventies and, and early eighties, um, and that transformation. And I, I mean, I, from what I understand it, you know, you do think it is time to start talking more expansively about, about the public sector and, and sort of the very nature of economic relationships. I mean, I think that's where that focus on political economy, um, is really useful. Yeah, no, certainly. I mean, one of the the the, the frame through my book is it's a, it's a look obviously at Trudeau uh, mainly. I mean, he is the main focus. You know, he's, he's he figures almost everywhere. But one of my other focuses, especially in the later chapters, is to examine just how radical the labor movement and the NDP was at the time. And one of the goals I have to show is that. You know, there was because one of the arguments is Trudeau is, is this leftist. He's offering this new vision of Canada. And in some ways he did. Again, I'm not, I, I don't discount that. But he's offering this this radical vision of Canada. And like, no, the radicals are Tommy Douglas. They're David Lewis. They're Ed Broadbent. They're, they're the mainstream labor leaders. And that's controversial because often people will look at the waffle and say, well, these were the, the radicals pushing against the the, the stuffy old uh, centrists of the of the new Democratic leadership. But from my perspective, you know, reading the words, the speeches, the writings, the private letters the uh, of Douglas Lewis and Broadbent, you get a real sense that for them, the democratic socialist project, and for, for them, they didn't distinguish between social democracy and democratic socialism. Mm. They would basically just call it the democratic left. They would distinguish themselves from communism, not so much at this point due to Red Scare, but from Ed Broadbent's perspective, the fact that neither communism nor capitalism was democratic. Um, and that only democratic socialism would be a democratic system. So from, from, from my perspective, I want to highlight from that period the fact that the democratic socialist project was not encompassed by social programs alone. And that for labor, uh, the, like for, for the NDP-aligned unions at least, um, and, the, um, and the NDP, that they really wanted to build a uh, an anti-capitalist society and that that's not that long ago and that there are still many lessons that we can learn for that. And I think that one of the things that needs to happen in our own time is that the kind of return of economic democracy as a key platform of the left in Canada needs to happen. And a lot of the blame should go to the NDP to a certain degree, although I do think it's changing. I think Andrea Horwath probably ran in some ways Canada's first credible post-neoliberal campaign, but the reality is that, um, you know, the, the labor movement itself has stopped to really push the idea of workers controlling the workplace. You don't see that so much anymore, and you saw that a lot in the 70s, and I think that's something that needs to return to kind of mainstream Canadian political discourse, and actually, there's an edited collection I've, I'm a contributor to um, later this year with Between the Lines, it's on the kind of past and present of the CCF NDP, and my con contribution to that argues that 
you know, the left and the, 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 the NDP um, generally really venerates its history and it venerates Tommy Douglas and it venerates um, to a lesser degree people like Ed Broadbent and David Lewis. And, and it venerates them because of their the fact that they uh, spoke to ideas when they were just kind of percolating below the public consciousness. Whether it's, you know, we shouldn't jail the Japanese or whether it's we should we should allow, um, you know, uh, health care should be seen as something of a universal right. Um, and, and those things are important. But I say that if you really want to embody the legacy of, say, Tommy Douglas, you know, the state worker and community ownership of the means of production is essential to that legacy. And what the specifics will look like, of course, will differ. 2018 is very different than 1971. But it's less it's less distinct than maybe the you know some centrist NDPers would would like to know or like to admit, and, and I think that that's part of the legacy going forward is to look at this period and to say people were offering a a different society politically mainstream political parties, um, and mainstream labor unions were offering a different world in Canada. Yeah. And 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 that that we have to kind of learn from those examples. Yeah, and it, it probably doesn't look like a subsidy to Greyhound, you know, on a very small but but relevant example. It probably doesn't look like a subsidy to to bring no. back Greyhound buses, but looks like a different type. I of mean, it's it's, it's interesting, yeah, because I mean the subsidy to Greyhound, and I mean I understand, you know, it, it's complicated because if the argument is that it's a, there's an immediate need, then you know a short term subsidy. You know, it, 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 ideological purity is important, but if it saves the lives of some indigenous women, then the NDP could be well positioned to do that. But it must be immediately accompanied and consistently accompanied by the call for um, the, the eventual, in the medium term, nationalization of transport. Um, there's no reason why in Canada we don't have a bus line associated with the general via rail network. Of, of trains, and we don't have expanded rail, of course, but of course we can't have rail everywhere, but there's no reason why VIA doesn't run through its extensive network, a system of buses as well, and it just as there's no reason in Canada that, you know, we don't have a national telecommunications company, and that we don't have a kind of postal banking system, so from the left's perspective in the 70s, they demanded all of these things, I mean, the NDP and QP had a kind of shared policy in the 1980s of nationalizing one of the big five banks, um, and just kind of in a sense competing with the banking sector. The NDP didn't just want to create Petro-Canada. They wanted to uh, nationalize the biggest oil company. I forget which one. It might have been Imperial. They wanted to nationalize the biggest oil company in the country to basically become the mammoth of the industry. Uh, They wanted Bell Union uh, nationalized to kind of have one of the biggest telephone, you know, the telecommunications firms be controlled by the public. And basically the NDP's perspective was that, you know, any any kind of major industry that's already relying on public subsidies, that trends towards monopoly or even in some cases oligopoly, or that is persistently, you know, indicative of market failure, needed to be controlled by the public. And in my perspective, frankly, that's the majority of the economy. That's the majority of the of of our of our economy, and I think that's something that needs to be kind of explored that you know, there's no reason why, you know, in our society, the majority of, of, of social functions are, are controlled through undemocratic means. So that's something that I'd certainly look to. And, and this is not just about public ownership for the NDP at the time. 
because I think in a sense they had learned a bit from the earliest days of the CCF, which were in a sense more technocratic, run by a lot of academics uh, and less maybe perhaps input than there should have been from rank and file workers. Whereas in the 70s, Ed Broadbent especially was constantly looking at ways to promote economic democracy. So he was a big fan of Yugoslavia and some of the things they were trying there. And Broadbent, for instance, had a policy, um, you know, they never made it a main platform, but it's something Broadbent believed in personally, that workplaces by default would be unionized and workers would opt out of unionization if they so chose, but that there would be, there would be no need for card check or for, or for you know, labor board votes. Workplaces would be union. Because Broadbent's view was that, you know, um, citizens, are, you know, people who are born in Canada are naturally citizens. They don't apply for it. And likewise, we want a citizenship of the workplace. Workers are automatically citizenships within it, citizens within it. So there's all these interesting policies that are that are not that old. We're not looking at the 30s here anymore. We're looking at a time where the majority of boomers probably remember hmm. um, and, and there's this different vision for society. And that's one of the side kind of side veins through the book and it shows one something i'm interested in but two it also i think helps make the case that that if people see trudeau on the left i'm giving a direct example of a mainstream left that's fundamentally different in how it approaches politics and the ideas of equality and democracy and opportunity and and all of those things to say that there is a fundamental difference between liberalism and socialism and that you know, Trudeau, in many ways, while he found personal alliances with the NDP, was more or less in that broad liberal conservative, you know, uh, big tent that, that has dominated Canadian politics and continues to. That was labor historian Christo Ivalis, and that's all for this episode. Talk to you again soon.